And at one point during all of that, I actually died. Oh, man. Yeah. And um, what was really interesting, when I died, it was, it was lovely, actually. Very relaxing. Another episode of the Wichita Live podcast. My name is Landon Huslig, and I am the host of the Wichita Live podcast and curator of the Wichita Life ICT Instagram. Our guest today is Sherry Burkhart. Sherry is an author who specializes in novellas and westerns. Sherry teaches English in China while living in Germany with her Chilean husband. We discuss her life as a writer and her fight against a traumatic brain injury and how it still affects her short-term memory today. Enjoy my conversation with Sherry Burkhart. All right, we're live. Sherry, how are you? I'm a little bit tired, but very happy. <laughs> yeah, working hard. Um, Definitely, you, always working hard. Of course. Um, are you, or can you tell the listeners a little, little bit about yourself? Um, well, I was born in Wichita, Kansas, and lived there for basically 44 and a half of the years of my life. At 46, I got married and moved out. I lived in Wichita, but I also lived in several of the little towns around Wichita. I lived in Goddard and Benton, and I actually graduated high school from Valley Center, Kansas. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Um, and I saw a note on your biography on your website or somewhere that you got married at Old Cowtown. Yeah, we did. That was so much fun. I wanted to do something a little bit different. My dream had always been to get married on Halloween and have a big costume party. Oh, yeah? But um, my husband... Uh, I guess I should tell you about this first is because of his job, we had our wedding date dictated to us. We could not do anything about it. Mm. My husband and I met in January in 2013, mm -hmm. dated until April and he got a job offer in Denmark and wanted me to go with him. And I told him I didn't feel comfortable moving to the other side of the country with somebody that I wasn't married to to a country where I didn't speak the language, didn't have family. And he was like, well, what if it was with your husband? And I was like, that would be different. So he's like, I said, are you asking me to marry you? And he said, yes, I'm asking you to marry me. I'm like, well, then I'll marry you. That's awesome. So we got, we got engaged um, on a Wednesday. We went out to dinner and told my parents on Friday and Saturday he left for Denmark. Wow. It was a very yeah. quick turnaround. Uh, yeah. We we did not see each other again in person until two weeks before the wedding. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of Skype dates. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's, I mean, now in 2019 or a couple years ago, I mean, technology's gone a long way, but it's still, it'd still be pretty difficult. Yeah, it was, it was very tough. We, we talked a lot, though. We were constantly on Skype together. We, we both are big fans of the Big Bang Theory, and mm -hmm. he would call me whenever the show was on TV in the United States because he didn't have it in, in Denmark. Mm -hmm. And I would turn the computer around and we would watch the Big Bang Theory together. That's awesome. Um, what's the time difference between Wichita and Denmark? Uh, it's about seven hours. Okay. Uh, and one more note I had on the, the Cowtown wedding was that it is interrupted by gunfighters? Yeah. Um, okay, to, to kind of complete this, we were trying to, while he was working in Denmark, we were trying to get time for him to come back for the wedding. Mm -hmm. And we were shooting for September. We wanted like a fall wedding. But the company said, no, the project's too hot. You, you can't leave yet. So then we tried October. I thought I could get my Halloween wedding. And they're like, oh, no, nope, project's still too hot. You can't do that. But the company shut down for a couple of weeks at Christmas. So like, okay, you can go home at that. So we ended up having to get married the weekend before Christmas. Oh, wow. And... Yeah, we, we didn't have a lot of people there because, you know, everybody already had plans for Christmas. Right. And it also ended up being that year, it was like the worst snowstorm that Kansas had seen in like a decade. Oh, the our, day before yeah, our yeah. wedding. Uh -huh. so, so Cowtown was just completely packed with snow. And they had people out there that morning. Volunteers were coming out, shoveling off the, the boardwalks and things so that we could get around for our <laughs> wedding. 
That's incredible. And, yeah, and we we had so much stuff booked with the people in Cato. We got married in the church, the Presbyterian church there. Mm-hmm. My mother actually performed the service. Both my parents oh, wow. are ordained. Nice. Yeah, both parents are ordained, so they could have done it, but my dad was going to walk me down the aisle, so my mom did the service. Okay. And then after, we had the reception in Fritz Snitzler's saloon. Mm-hmm. And then after we had like all the cake and dancing and everything, there were two gunfighters that came out and put on a show out in the, the main street for all of the, the guests. Very cool. Very cool. That's probably we were one of the most unique weddings you could have had, though, in Cowtown oh, yeah. with a ton of snow. Oh, yeah. And the, the photos that we got from our wedding are gorgeous with all the snow and they have it all decorated for Christmas. So there's all of this um, evergreen boughs everywhere and it's just it was really beautiful but the thing that was disappointing we were supposed to leave the reception in the covered wagon or in the stagecoach that they have there Mm -hmm. but because of all the snow and their horses don't have horseshoes they weren't going to have enough traction to be able to walk through the snow so we had to just leave in my car (laughs) ah gotcha um so jumping around just a little bit um you are a writer but before we get into that you also teach english can you talk a little bit about that yeah, um, I, I wanted to have a job that I could do from home and be able to spend as much time as possible on my writing. And one of the things that I found online was there were so many people who were advertising about you could teach English as a second language online to people in other countries. And I hooked up with somebody, I think on Facebook, who said that they did this job. And I was asking about them. And they said, yeah, it was great. They worked with this company called VIP Kid in uh, China. I think they're stationed in Beijing, their main office. Okay. And I did an online interview. I did a practice uh, class with their information with one of their um, managers. Mm-hmm. They liked the style that I had. And they signed me up. And for like the last two years, I get to teach children in China English lessons uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday every week. Wow, that's really cool. How did so? How does that work? So, how how old are the kids, and how do you teach English? Do you know Chinese? No, and you're not supposed to to speak. Even if you know Chinese, you're not supposed to speak any Chinese with them in the classes. Oh wow! Because the whole focus is for them to get experience hearing English okay. from a native speaker, mm-hmm. and to kind of force them to come out. And and being someone who has had to you know live in Germany when I only knew three words of German when I moved here, sure. I understand like that immersion feeling and how that can really help you build your language skills. So it's it, the things that I've learned as I'm learning German have really helped me apply different sort of techniques to the class for these kids teaching them English. Yeah, I bet that helps a lot. And, are you are you fluent in German now? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I I know the basics. I can function. It's it's much better. Whenever I first moved moved here, I knew ja, nein, and schnell. That's and more basically, than I know. that was just from Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I know a little. I, I've been learning Spanish for a couple of years, and I think the biggest thing holding me back would be that immersion and kind of diving all the way in. I mean, being in Wichita, we have people that speak Spanish, so I can practice a little bit. But really, immersing yourself would be the next step. Yeah, whenever I was living here, I took Spanish in high school and then Spanish and Russian in college. And I was actually, you know, fairly fluent in Spanish. And then after college, I did not speak like another word of Spanish to anyone because I just didn't run into anybody who spoke Spanish. And now I'm married to a Chilean and half, you know, most of my in-laws speak Spanish. I'm like, okay, what was that (laughs) word? What was that word? (laughs) Wow. So you're just all kinds of different languages. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's... And the thing is, is I get so many of them mixed up. I've, I've realized that German has become my default lang- uh, foreign language. Mm-hmm. My, my husband's friend and his wife were here for a visit, and she only speaks Spanish. And she and I went out uh, shopping together because we figured we have our iPhones. We can use translator. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And every time I would try to speak Spanish to her, it would start off in German. Oh, that's funny. Automatically, I know I'm speaking a foreign language and it comes out German. So I would have to like stop myself and think about like, okay, no, not German, Spanish. And then I could start saying a few things. And the more I speak Spanish, the more I'm remembering. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And one of my stepdaughters speaks very good English. She taught herself watching Netflix. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And so she helps me out a lot with my Spanish too. 
Cool. Do you, so I guess since you're around so, around so many different languages, do you have any tips for people that are learning other languages besides being kind of immersed in it? What, what are some other tips for learning languages? It, it sounds like kind of a, a crazy thing. And people always told this to me and I thought that's ridiculous. That doesn't work. They tell you, don't translate. Don't sit there and think about, okay, this is the English word. Then it's the German word. You need to like, kind of like start off like you're a kid. Just learn the words in that language. Don't try to translate it to your language. Okay. Just awesome. go in and say, okay, here's a cup, the German word. You know, I see the picture of the cup. Think the German word, not cup, and then the German word. Hmm. All right. I'm sure that's going to be helpful for a lot of people. So have you always been a writer? Have you always wanted to write? Or how long have you been writing? I, I cannot remember a time when I wasn't writing stories or poems or, mm-hmm. you know, little skits. I, I've always done that. My, my dream was always to be a writer. It's like, and I, I kind of got into that being a journalist. Uh-huh. But I, my passion was really, I wanted to write books. Cool. And, and you were a ghostwriter for a bit. How does that work? Or what is ghostwriting for people that don't know that? Um, there's a lot of people who, um, put their names on books as the author, but they don't write a word that's in there. They tell somebody their idea, they give them all the information and then that person writes the story for them. Interesting. And you get paid for that. And then the other person puts their name on the work. That's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's actually how I got started into writing Westerns. The, the first Hmm. uh, little fiction book that I wrote as a ghostwriter was a short story that somebody wanted or they wanted to do just a little novella. They have a whole collection of novellas under this one author name. And it was so much fun to write. You know, coming from Kansas and I lived on a ranch for a while and I, you know, rode horses and worked with cows and, you know, know how to shoot guns. And I I just put all of the stuff that I had experienced and loved doing when we lived on the ranch into the story. And it was just it was like reliving my childhood and like my you know, playing cowboys and Indians when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, so you mentioned the word novella. What? So what's the difference between a novella and a novel for people that don't know? Basically, it's just the length. Novellas are much shorter. They're usually like under, I think, 10,000 words is the basic kind of standard. And then everything over that tends to be more considered of a novel. Okay. And And you currently write more novellas than novels. Is that correct? Right. Um, the, the guy that I had worked with um, as a ghostwriter, his whole series was just these little novellas, and he was doing really well with that. Apparently, he was saying that, you know, a lot of people, you know, they're so busy, they don't have time to sit down and read a whole novel. Plus, if it's something that they want to carry with them, novels are much bigger. Mm-hmm. And the novella industry, I guess you would say, is becoming very popular, especially for books on Amazon. Okay, yeah. It's a very big market there. Okay. And uh, so you self, you mentioned Amazon. So you've self-published your books right now. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the self-publishing process? It's, it's actually very easy and that can be good and it can be bad because there's a lot of books that are being published that are, are not getting edited. They don't have an editor. There's, um, whenever you buy the book, you find out that there's like horrible grammatical mistakes and inconsistencies and things like that. So it's very easy to do, but people still need to follow like a good professional process. Mm -hmm. Go into the Amazon, they have KDP publishing and you have a PDF file, or I think they even take doc files and a couple other different files. You have an image for your cover and they give you the format that you need to uh, put your document in. Mm -hmm. And, you just upload the documents and they do everything else. And it's, does, it's does really that include a simple process? Huh? Does that include printing hard copies or is that just digital? That's digital, but they do have an option that you can have print books because wow. both uh, all of my books are in print and on uh, the ebook format. And I'm I swear I am going to get to this. I've been trying to get to this for a long time. I want to do audio books too. Very cool. Um, I've. I've done uh, broadcast news before, so I'm familiar with doing like the recordings and things and doing the editing for soundtracks before you right. broadcast. So I've been wanting to do my own audiobooks too. 
And I just, I haven't taken the time to sit down and get all of the information figured out for their format. And I've got to do it. I started to do it and then they changed their process and changed the format. Of course. Yeah. Everything's changing. (laughs) Yep. And on your books, you do everything from writing to advertising to designing. Um, Do you like kind of doing everything from start to finish minus maybe the editing? Yeah, I'm a big obsessive compulsive. I'm a control freak. So so I I actually do kind of like being in control of everything. But um, I have had to kind of back off a little bit and let some other people help me recently because I'm just, I've got way too much stuff that I want to get done and not enough time. And it's been really helpful to have a couple of people coming in and giving me a hand on some things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I understand the control freak thing. I've had a couple friends and um, family kind of volunteer to help me with the podcast a little bit, but I'm at the point where I, the editing, I don't really edit them a whole lot. It's pretty much just a conversation, but I don't even let hand that much over. So I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it hard to spread the word on the book or, I mean, you might have a small audience built in now, but is there a lot of organic traffic to the different Amazon novella books or books you write? No, because there are so many, right. I mean, there's just, there's hundreds of thousands of books on there that it's, it's really hard to get noticed. Right. I bet it's hard to stand um, out. I, I actually thought this is, this is funny because, um, I've been doing, uh, some work with, one of the other authors that I met online, his name is Scott Harris. He's an award-winning, best-selling Western author, and he works through a couple of different places. And a lot, of, all of his books are on Amazon. And this last year, instead of writing my books, I spent more time focusing on working on projects with him to try hmm. and get a little bit of notice for me through his work. Sure. He was putting out these compilations where he had 52 authors, him and 51 authors, and he gave us a writing prompt. Like, um, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> that was actually, that was kind of like a joke one that he did. We all had to start our story with, it was a dark and stormy night. Because that's okay. such a cliche thing that they say, never write a story with that. Right. And so we he published this book that has 52 short stories, all starting with the same phrase. And then every author took it in a different direction. And you have your story, and then right next to it on the next page is a biography of, you know, who you are and your work. And... Um, it, it helps to just get a little bit more attention for all of these other authors who are trying to get to his point. You know, he's a wonderful guy that he does this for, but he's really helpful for people who are trying to come up after him, you know, that's and awesome. he, he just wrote a book. Yeah. He just wrote a book. His one that he was working on right now that's in editing now, um, is an advice book on if you want to get into writing, this is, you know, my best advice. And he asked a lot of these authors who had been working with him on these anthologies, if they would like to write another short about what their best advice would be. Hmm. And so I just finished turning that in. And my, my best advice was it's like, really do not count on anyone else helping you spread the word. You need to have an advertising budget. Sure. You need to be prepared to, to spend money to get a little bit of attention whenever you're starting off at first, because I was extremely naive whenever I started this. I thought I have like, 400 friends on my Facebook page. And I know personally, most of them, right? I mean, we've been, most of them I've gone to school with, I've worked with, I've gone to college with. And I just naively thought I will post up here about my book and every one of them will share my post and tell their friends to look at my book. And there's about 10, yep, yep. <laughs> 10, 10 who do it consistently and really, you know, help me out. And I don't have a problem with that. I realize everybody has their own lives. They have their own agendas. They have their own priorities. And I am not a priority in their life. But, you know, it takes like two seconds to hit share. And right. the books that I write are all wholesome. I mean, they, they pretty much border on Christian fiction. And, you know, they're, they're clean books. They're not, there's no sex scenes. It's all just, you know, interpersonal relations and, and history and, you know, there's, there's still, there's only a few people who do it. My mother is like my biggest fan. She, she buys most of my books. I keep telling her, it's like, you know, I could just send you the PDF <laughs> and you could just send me money and we can cut out the middle, man. I love it. <laughs> but she, she'll buy Whenever one of my books comes out, she'll buy a ton of them and take them to work and hand them out and tell people to read them and post reviews for me. <laughs> <laughs> if, if my mother is like my best PR agent. Hey, it's good to have I, one at least. So. And, and my friend Gayla Kelly, I have to mention her too. She's like a really big help. She, she reposts everything that I post. Very cool. 
Um, so you write westerns, and um, I think one of the series maybe ongoing is Into the West. Yeah, I'm I'm actually doing these as – when I was a kid, I always loved watching on TV those serial shorts that they used to show in the movie theaters mm-hmm. before, you know, like the, the Lone Ranger and all of those kind of uh, just – quick 20, 30 minute shows that they used to have. Mm -hmm. And it was like an ongoing story. It always kept going. And the end usually had a cliffhanger and I love those. So that's what I base these stories on is it's a a quick read with a cliffhanger. And then the next book kind of backs up a little bit and shows you the end of the, the previous book in a different, from a different character's perspective and then goes on from there. Cool. That's awesome. That's the way I'm doing this. And that way, it's like in the first book, everybody hated this one nun that they just thought that she was horrible. And then the second book, you kind of go back and she explains, you see why she is the way that she is. And she was actually doing it for the children. She was only motivated for what was best for them, what oh, she wow. thought was best. And so then everybody liked her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you go through the next book and everybody hates this person. And then I start the book out again and you go back and you find out why they're like that. And then, you know, it just kind of keeps going back and like retelling and giving more information and it, it's just it's fun to do i don't know if people enjoy reading it that way but i enjoy writing it that way sure that's really interesting though that's, i mean that's a good way to approach it different point of views and everything it makes for an interesting story um so your website and those books are actually under the name um steven burkhart can you go into that a little bit yeah um whenever i first started looking into doing books under my own name i did a little bit of market research you know i spent 20 years in advertising so i like focus groups and most people said that if it was a romance western they would expect women to write it better if it was a straight western and more historical fiction they expected a man to write it better so i i thought okay well just to kind of hedge my bets about people wanting to pick up this book and read it since it is a straight Western. They're not romances. I decided to adopt a male pen name and I probably went a little bit further with it than some people do. I, I talked my dad into being the face of Stephen Burkhart. So whenever you see pictures of Stephen Burkhart, that's my dad when he was my age. Wow. Yeah. And it helps. His name is Steve. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that kind of makes it a little bit convenient. But I got the name by taking my original last name, Stevens, and just dropping the last S uh-huh. and then adding my current last name, hmm. so Stephen Burkhardt. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And yeah, I was doing a little bit of research. You had emailed me and I started looking at it. And I was like really confused reading your website for a minute. And then I tied the email together and realized what you were doing. But it took me a minute to realize what was going on. Well, and I, I plan, actually, I want to write in a bunch of different genres. I do want to write, like, some sci-fi and horror. And and I have such a long, crazy name that I just figured I'm going to mix and match all of my different names to come up with all of these different pen names so I can separate the genres. I like that. That's really cool. Yeah. And usually whenever I say my whole name, people laugh. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll include your whole name if you want me to so people can see what we're talking about. Oh, uh, Yeah. Like, because I I was Sherry Diane Stevens for 46 years. I mean, that's more than, I mean, considering, you know, that I probably won't live into my mid 90s, that that was more than half my life. So when I got married, I I didn't really want to let that go. But my husband, he has his mother's last name and his father's last name. Ah. And he he only, his actual last name is from his mother's family. But I wanted to really kind of like honor both sides of his family since he had that too. So I took both. (laughs) (laughs) So now my whole name is Sherry Diane Stevens at the Marlboro Cart. (laughs) Yeah. That's a little bit longer than most people. Yeah. It doesn't even fit on my social security card. They had to drop Brett Jamal off. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Um, So years ago you were in an accident that led to a life threatening neurological condition and um, I believe it was seven surgeries in six months. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have what is called an Arnold Chiari malformation. Nowadays, they pretty much drop the Arnold and just refute, refer, refer to it as a Chiari malformation. And I also have a Cyrenix and hydrocephalus. So that's actually like three different little neurological problems. What it is, um, 
for people who have this condition, there's a little bit of conjecture. Some people say that it is a birth defect. And some people say that it can happen because of a physical trauma. Mm -hmm. The problem is you only know if you have one, if you get an MRI, that's the only way to be Uh. certain. People aren't given MRIs at birth, so there's no way to prove whether or not you had it at birth right. or if you had it after an accident. Because most people only get after an MRI after an accident right. when they're having problems. And that's when I had mine. I was working in a bookstore at Town West, and part of, you know, in the mall, they have uh, these little bookshelves on wheels that they push out in front of the security gates when the store is open. Mm-hmm. And then at night when you close, you have to pull them back behind the security gate. And it was right before Christmas. It was November 6th in 2002. And I was uh, the manager and assistant manager had opened the store and set up this hardcover, really large coffee table book display on mm-hmm. this one bookshelf that was out in front of the store. And apparently one of the wheels on the cart was broken and they propped it up. Oh, no. And then that manager and assistant manager left and another assistant manager and me came in to work the closing shift. Nobody told us that that wheel was broken. Oh, man. And part of my duties at night was to pull those bookshelves back in behind the security gate. So I go over there and I pull on it. The wheel snaps off. And all of this bookshelf with all of these hardcover, thick oh, coffee no. table books fall over and hit me in the legs and slam me down on a tile floor in a seated position. They figured out that it was like 250 pounds of pressure slamming me into that floor. So it was like being tackled by a linebacker into a cement floor. Right. Oh, man. And from that point on, for like several months, I just started having more and more problems. I started having like blurred vision, slurred speech. I had a headache from that moment on. Ever since that day, I have had a headache every day of my life since then. The only thing that ever varies is how bad that headache is. I wake up with it. I go to sleep with it. It's always there. Oh, man. And, you know, I started having trouble swallowing and walking. I was tripping. I was dropping things. And I kept, you know, saying, you know, I I think I need to go to the doctor. I need to go to the doctor. And I was being put off saying, well, you have to go to a special doctor because it's under work comp. And we have to figure this out. And it took me six months for them to, to help me get to a doctor. And I had developed, like, a lot of neurological problems by then. And come to find out, I did not have to wait. At that point, I was like, you know, kind of naive with how the whole work comp thing went. Mm-hmm. I could have gone to any doctor and just filed it as work comp for that initial thing. Right. And so my recovery, my I actually developed a lot of nerve damage. That I might have been saved if I got into a doctor sooner. Oh, man. But um, I ended up going through um, all of these things. They did do an MRI, and they found this um, curare malformation. The bad thing was it was one of the work comp doctors who found it. And he was like, I, I need to just tell you, you have a curare malformation. You need to go talk to your doctor about it. And I was like, okay, is it something serious? Do I need to go like now? And he's like, well, it doesn't have anything to do with your work comp case. So I can't talk to you about it. I'm like, okay, but I mean, can I wait or do I need to like make an appointment for tomorrow? Right. Like, is it emergency? Yeah, he's like, I, I can't talk to you about it. It has nothing to do with the work comp case. I'm a work comp doctor. I mean, and the guy just, every time I tried to ask him, he's like, okay, but am I going to die if I don't go to the doctor next week? You know, how bad is this? Right. He's like, I, I, I can't talk to you about it. So That's frustrating. I ended up, yeah, I was, I also said something very unnice and it was not good, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a really bad problem with no filter on my mouth at times. And as I was leaving his office, I just told him, like, you know, I've always believed that do- people become doctors for one or two reasons. They do it for, you know, because they actually care and they want to help people and they want people to be healthy or they do it for money. And I know which one you did it for. Yeah. But I mean, you was, were, was, there's understandable. You have a reason to be frustrated. Yeah, there was, there was, you know, it was not a good thing to say somebody who was rating me for a disability check. So I, I definitely have learned that I need to to keep a little bit better control on my mouth at times. But um, I, I ended up going to a very good neurosurgeon with a Bay Neurosciences or his science center. His name is Dr. John Dickerson. That man um, is fantastic. I love him. <laughs> Anybody who ever has like any kind of neurological problems and thinks they need a neurosurgeon, I always recommend him. He, he really 
him and his assistant, and I, I hate that I can't remember her name. His his physician's assistant was amazing. Mm-hmm. You like this whole thing. But um, we went in. He did all these tests, and he told me, hey, this is what you have. This is what can happen. This is, you know, things that we can do to treat it. This is my recommendation. What do you want to do? And I was like, okay, well, if I want to do this, what happens? And he, and he tells me. And if I want to do this, what happens? And he tells me. And so together we like figure out, say, okay, I want to go ahead. He, he actually told me, he said, we can wait and see if it does kind of level out, if you know, things do keep progressing or not. And he said, or we can go to surgery. And he, he made sure that I understood that there was a possibility of a lot of complications with this kind of surgery. Because I have actually, there was a documentary done about the same time that I was going in for my surgeries of an 18-year-old girl that she spent basically her entire senior year of high school having brain surgeries. She had something like 19 surgeries in a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, I mean, so he, he made sure that I understood that's a possibility. Some people go in, they have their first surgery, they're done, they're fine. Some people don't. And I was one of those people who didn't. So my first surgery was in April. And what they did was they took out some of the bone in the back of my skull, replaced it with tissue from a cow so that it was flexible so that um, fluid could flow back up into my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I should probably back up and explain a little bit. For Chiari malformation, you have the left to right hemisphere of your brain. And then underneath, back uh, by your spinal cord, you have the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. The cerebellum has these two little tonsils that for most people, they curl up and just sit in your skull up underneath the cerebellum. For people who have my condition, those two tonsils hang down into your spinal column with your spinal cord. So wow. you have like this little hole with a little tube for your spinal cord that's in the middle and all this cerebral spinal fluid flows around that. Uh-huh. But then when you have a Chiari, you have these two tonsils that squish down in that column with that spinal cord and you lose the free flow of your spinal fluid. And so your brain's not getting the fluid that it needs for it to make all of those neurological connections in your brain. Sure. And that's what had been causing like all of these problems. My brain was kind of like deprived of fluid and it wasn't making those connections. So I wasn't able to talk and speak and see and, wow. and you know, swallow. Mm-hmm. And so they took out the bone and replaced it with the tissue to replace the, you know, allow the fluid to flow again. The problem is then I developed hydrocephalus. I had too much water on the brain Hmm. and my head kept swelling up. And after the first surgery, I went home and I sneezed and the patch popped because of all the pressure in my head. Uh So then my head just like started swelling up like a balloon and I had to go back to the hospital and they did another surgery and replaced the patch. I went home and it popped again. And so I had to go back. And so this time they're like, okay, the pressure's too high. We think we need to put in a VP shunt, which is a little valve in the top of my head. Mm-hmm. And there's a tube that runs underneath the skin, down my neck, under my chest, and into my abdomen. And when I have too much fluid, it that valve releases it, and it goes down and releases um, all the fluid next to my intestines, and they just reabsorb it. And then even with that valve, I still kept having problems with this patch popping and ended up having five brain surgeries by September of that year. Whew. Yeah. That is and then a lot. I also had a problem. The, the tube pulled out of place at one time, too, and I had to go back in and they had to put the tube back in place. It's like pushed through my diaphragm and wow. it had popped out and created a big pocket of fluid on my side. So they had to go in and fix that for one surgery too. That uh-huh. was the, the one that wasn't a brain surgery. Mm-hmm. And after my fifth brain surgery, um, I started getting very, very sick. My mom took me to the neurosurgeon's office and I was sitting in his lobby and they called my name. I'm like, mom, I'm too weak. I, I don't think I can get up and walk back there. They need to get a wheelchair. And the physician assistant comes out and looks at me and she's like, in two seconds, she's like, take her to the emergency room. I'll call ahead. They'll be waiting for you. And I had had a MRSA staph infection in my head. Oh. And it uh, got into the spinal fluid, became meningitis. I had a a spinal tap 24 hours a day for a couple of days where they would come in every hour on the hour and drain fluid off of my nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I got, I was seen by infectious disease specialists every day for like 
two, two and a half weeks. And at one point during all of that, I actually died. Oh, man. Yeah. And um, what was really interesting, when I died, it was it was lovely, actually. Very relaxing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was a, a life-changing experience. And uh, before this, I was, you know, really obsessive compulsive, very neurotic, extreme, like germaphobe OCD. And ever since this happened, I'm like, eh. <laughs> not that important. I, yeah, I'm alive. I have hair. Life is good. <laughs> wow. So do you remember much of, I don't know, dying? Like, did you, do you see the light? How do you remember anything like that? Or were you kind of, I don't know. I, I remember everything. Um, I was actually, I was so weak at this time. I could not even open my eyes. I did not have the energy to open my eyes. I was in so much pain. It was incredible. And, uh, I was just laying there one night and I was like, you know, God, if, if I am meant to die, please kill me now because I cannot do this anymore. I'm done. Mm-hmm. I can't take it. But if I am meant to live, please make me start getting better because I, I seriously, I can't do it. Wow. So I'm done fighting. I, I don't care. I'm just going to leave it up to you. Whatever you want to happen, just please do it now. And the room got brighter. I was able to open my eyes. And I heard a voice say, that is all I was waiting for. And I died. Oh, wow. That's incredible. <laughs> and and it was the most, it, like at that moment, it wasn't scary. It was just, it felt like as natural as taking your next breath. Uh-huh. And... It was like suddenly being completely connected to everything. Every bit of energy in the world just being completely connected to that instantly. And it was just, it was the most beautiful thing. And I was told, like, okay, you can stay here where, you know, everything is wonderful. You'll never be in pain again. Everything is great. Or you can go back. And there are a lot of things that you still have left to accomplish. It's going to be tough. You're going to be in a lot of pain. But there's a lot of experiences that you haven't had yet that will be incredible. Which one do you want to do? And I was like, okay, well, I get to come back to this at any point, right? right. <laughs> like, I can, I can always come back here later. It's uh-huh. like this is going to go away if I, if I say no to this now. And it's like, nope, you'll always come back here. I'm like, okay, let's go back. And I woke up and I started getting better. Wow, that's beautiful, man. God yeah. is incredible. That is awesome. Yeah. Like and. I don't tell that story a lot to people, but it's really incredible. It's like something always tells me when I meet the person I need to tell that to. I have stumbled um, into conversations with people who are dying of a terminal illness that nobody else knows about. And I start telling them the story and they just like break down and they're like, you have no idea how much I needed to hear this. And it's just, it's always been incredible how I always seem to to find the people and have conversations with who, who need to hear it. Right. And I, I'm sure there's a reason that we're talking about it right now. Somebody's going to hear it that needs to hear it. That's incredible. Like I always tell people now, it's like I have absolutely no fear of dying. I have a fear of dying slowly and painfully again. Right, right. You know, that, that's, that was not fun. That's understandable. <laughs> but actually dying does not fear. I have no fear for that anymore. Mm-hmm. So that one of your doctors, um, kind of after all this is going on, kind of, just advised you to accept your fate and live on disability and kind of move on with your life. But you refused that and you fought against it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. For, for several years after the surgeries, I was having a lot of complications for like the first five years was just absolute hell. Um, I was having migraines so bad that I would go to the ER about one to three times a month. About every three months I was being uh, hospitalized again. Um, I was still having trouble with swallowing and speaking. My short-term memory was just pretty much non-existent. I still remember one time going to the store with my mother, and I wanted to buy a photo album. And I could not, for the life of me, think of the word photo album. And I'm like, okay, it's a book. It has pages. You put pictures in it. And, you know, you use it to show people, like, vacations and stuff like that. And I could not think of that word. And it, it was like... At the time, I knew that word was in my brain. I knew I should be able to find that word, that it was a common word. Right. It was the most incredibly frustrating moment that I, I remember, like, right after the surgeries. And that still it happens quite often, and it, it drives me crazy, but I've learned to just kind of roll with it now and, and what to do to get around when those things happen. 
have developed coping mechanisms. Right. But, um, okay. I lost it. What was the question? <laughs> oh, you're good. Just, uh, refusing the diagnosis, but, um, yeah. that kind of leads into the next piece. Um, as far as the coping mechanisms and kind of a unique struggle being an author and not being able to maybe think of the word you're trying to use, or, um, I know you've mentioned in some interviews, the character names. Yeah. Yeah. All of my, well, almost all my character names are my friend's names. I contact a friend and I'm like, you know, Hey, I'm writing this story. I have this character. Can I use your name for it? Because anybody that I knew either for a very long time or before the surgeries, I can remember that name. But if it's somebody that I've met since the surgeries, or I, I don't see them very often, I will never remember their name. It's for some reason, it's really specifically a name issue. Hmm. Um, <laughs> there was something that happened this last year that was just absolutely hilarious. I don't know what triggered it, why it happened. When I was in my 20s, we had a cat named Seamus. Uh-huh. And I knew I worked for Wichita Wings. The goalkeeper then was Seamus McDonough. And I'd actually named the cat after him. Mm-hmm. Those are the only two living beings I have ever known in my life with the name Seamus. Uh-huh. For some reason, this last year, something triggered in my brain. And for a month, every time I went to say my husband's name or my dog's name, it came out Seamus. Oh, wow. My husband's name is Pedro. My dog's name is Shaggy. Shaggy's at least a little bit close. But Pedro is nowhere close to Seamus. No, it's not. But every time I tried to say their name, I said Seamus. And I have no idea what triggered that. And that went on for like a month. Wow. Yeah. Huh. There's all these weird kind of things that happen with this. And we just find it amusing now. It's like, oh, okay. My brain's just off on its own tangent. <laughs> so <laughs> is, for, go ahead. For the, the diagnosis, yeah, I had been seeing a uh, – neurologist Mm -hmm. you know i had neurologists neurosurgeons you know internal medicine doctors general gps i mean i had like a team of doctors and this neurologist that i was seeing was telling me it's like um okay you're going to the er with all these migraines you're never going to be able to work again you're never going to be able to um live out of pain you need to just go on heavy narcotics claim disability and accept that this is the rest of your life and i just kind of looked at him like (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like, I, I, there's no way that this is, this is it. This is not what I came back for. This right. is not what my life is going to be. And I told him, I said, you know, okay, I think we're done. If, you know, I understand if you don't have the answers, but you're not even willing to look for the answers. So I'm going to go look for them on my own. And I, you know, I loved college. I loved doing research papers. I loved finding information. You know, that's part of what made me mm-hmm. a good reporter when I did it. So I started doing research and I researched pain triggers and, you know, how the body functions. And I started realizing that a lot of it got tied to food. Hmm, A lot of it was just nutrition. And I was drinking, I drink tons of diet soda. Uh You know, I, I actually could go, you know, they used to have diet soda that came in those big square cube things. I could go through one of those in a day. Oh man. I mean, I drink a lot of diet soda and, um, you know, Artificial sweeteners are a huge pain trigger. So I got rid of those and Hmm. I cut my my pain down like about a third, getting rid of all the artificial sweeteners that were in my my diet. Mm -hmm. Then I started cutting out uh, packaged foods, things that had preservatives and colorings and just going to like whole foods, natural foods, you know, uh, nuts and, um, you know, salads and whole wheat bread and things like that that were full of nutrition and not full of chemicals. And my pain just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. And then I moved to a plant-based diet. I'm not like vegan. I was for a little while, but uh-huh. my husband really likes cheese. So it's hard to, to, cook, yeah. to cook, cook two full meals. So I'm, I'm more like a flexigenarian, I guess they call it where, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'll eat eggs with him. Sure. And um, but basically it's like no chicken, no beef. And a lot of that is because it's not the, the meat so much that's bad. I'm, I'm not like advocating that in any way, but it's the stuff they put in it. That was the problem. Sure. Because you know, so many places they use antibiotics and they use growth hormones and all of that stuff was messing with me. So I got away from the foods that carry that. And after I became a vegetarian, I, never went back to the ER for a migraine again. 
Oh, wow. Huh. So it's like whenever people give me a hard time about being a vegetarian, I'm like, um, okay, it's, it's not so much, you know, that I have like this, you know, horrible vendetta against meat eaters. Right. I have this horrible vendetta about not going back to the emergency room. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what it is for me. I don't like going to the emergency room. So do you have trouble you have trouble with the stories kind of coming up with new names? Is it hard to meet new people? Can you remember their names or is that do you have to go through any additional steps that maybe somebody else might not have to? Well, what I just do, I just flat out tell people. It's like, look, I have a really bad problem with names. I will not remember your name. If I come and see you again, it's fine to ask me if I remember your name and I will probably say no. Just tell me your name again. Right. <laughs> it's like I one thing that's really helpful, I do not get embarrassed. I, I have no problem just telling people I can't do that. I don't know. My brain doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a big deal for me. I, it is the way it is. There's nothing for no reason for it to bother me. Right. So I just tell people, I will not remember your name. Please just tell me when you see me, it's like, Hey, I'm so-and-so. Do you remember we had class together and, and people do it. They have no problem with it. Right. I mean, it's not your fault. kind of, I mean, it just happens. So nothing to feel yeah. ashamed about. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes life just so much easier. <laughs> uh, your brain also... I, Go ahead. My husband and I came back to, to Kansas for my 51st, 51st birthday this last year. Uh -huh. And I put out an email to all my friends who are coming to the party. And I'm like, okay, let's de-stress this party right now. If I bring my husband up to you and I start to introduce you and I say, honey, this is... And I pause. I forgot your name. Say your name for me. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> Everybody... Yeah, everybody at the party just knew. If I start to say your name and I pause, just say it for me. That's funny. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just, I'm always really open about it. And people are more than willing to help. Yeah, that's the best way to handle it. Yeah. You also mentioned that your brain can get stuck or sound like a scratch record. And you kind of <laughs> gave an example. For example, Elizabeth shut the door and then she, and then she, and then she turned to Connor. <laughs> Does that happen quite a bit? Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll do that when I'm thinking. I'll do that when I'm talking, and I, I do that when I'm writing. It's it's really funny. Luckily, you know my uh, word program will tell you when you have repeated words. Right. But yeah, it happens a lot. Um, I first noticed it whenever I was working at the bookstore, and we would be doing inventory, and I'd be sitting there like counting CDs or something, and I would be counting like you know 78, 79, 79, 79, 79, 80. You know, mm -hmm. and I mean I would I wouldn't you know keep saying 79 as I counted more. I would get stuck on number 79. Sure. So I would have an accurate count, but I would have to stop and just stay stuck on 79 from it before I could go on. Sure. Okay. Um, so do you have any advice for anybody that either one wants to be an author um, and kind of go through the self-publishing process maybe, or two, maybe suffering from similar um, brain trauma or condition like you have? Um, for the, the brain trauma, I definitely have advice for that. It's like, don't always just take your doctor's word as gospel. Get second opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, Talk to other people who have gone through the same thing. Be your own advocate. Because there are a lot of doctors who um, have like this set plan. They're like, okay, you have a neurological problem. This is what we're going to do. That may not necessarily work for you. Everybody is different. Everybody has a genetic makeup. Everybody has different allergies. They have different, right. you know, birth defects or whatever. Things need to be tailored to you. And if you don't feel like it's being tailored to you, ask somebody else. Talk to another doctor. Do your own research. You are the only one who is truly going to care 100% about your own health. Everybody else may care. But you are the only one who will make it your absolute priority. Right. And you have to stand up for your own health. If I hadn't done that, if I had just accepted what the doctors were telling me, I would be on disability. I would be in extreme pain. I would wow. be living on narcotics. Right. right now, I do not take any pain medication. I manage everything through my diet. Yeah, I, you know, diet, the gym, exercise, meditation, yoga. I've, I've found a way to manage all of my pain. I still, I have pain every day, but I manage it so that I can function and have a life. Right. I have not had a debilitating migraine. I'll have bad headaches, but I have not had like a serious, I have to go into bed and, you know, turn all the lights off kind of migraine in a couple of years. 
And I mean, it's that's amazing for me. That is that's amazing. Um, so what is something you often recommend to people, whether it's a book or a movie or music or, any, or a TV show? Is there something that you recommend to people a lot? Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I probably there's one thing I have a friend who um, is a movie historian. And he is always coming up with these these great old movies that I've never heard of, mm -hmm. you know, from like uh, the silent era and the 20s and the 30s. And so many people nowadays don't go back and look at those. And some of them are amazing. And, you know, some of my favorite movies are with uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy. They did the Thin Man series. Okay. And for back there in the time that they did these, these were like really kind of risque comedy movies that, you know, they're making off-color comments that would be really easy to um, miss if you aren't paying attention. Right. And they're great. And people don't take the time to go back. Everybody wants new and they want CGI and they want all this. Right. But once yep. on a weekend, go rent one of these old movies and look at them too. They're great. And they, they really shouldn't be lost. They're they're fantastic. Yeah, I know I haven't done my due diligence and watched a lot of those. <laughs> I'll have to reach back and I'll definitely recommend that. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes to some of those movies. So, well, the guy is uh, J.B. Kaufman. He's actually from Wichita. Oh, wow. He lives in Wichita. He would be somebody who would be great for you to interview, seriously. Did he's not amazing. Know that. He, cool. He's a Disney historian. He has written several books um, about the history behind some of the Disney movies. There's one that he did that's called South of the Border that was about um, how Disney actually helped to get um, – I'm going to mess this up. I'm sorry, JB. Um, they went down to South America to create just goodwill relations. Mm-hmm with the people there during World War II. Wow. And that's where they came up with uh, the Disney movie Three Caballeros. Okay. And it's just all the history behind them. I mean, it's just fascinating. So yeah, J.B. Kaufman is is amazing. If you want to find information about, you know, some of the, the fantastic movies that have kind of been lost in time. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. Do you have a favorite failure or anything in any aspect of your life? Yeah, actually, the first time that I went to college, um, I went to college right out of high school. Mm -hmm. And um, neither one of my parents um, finished high school. They did GEDs and went into careers and, mm -hmm. you know, just killed it in their field. But they were not, um, you know, like they always tell you to be like a well-rounded student when you go to college. They, they didn't do like 30-page research papers and they, they hadn't had like a lot of algebra. So when I was going to college, I really didn't have a lot of help with things like that. I was trying to figure out myself. And, you know, I was the first person in our family to go to college. And it was really overwhelming when I went the first time. Mm -hmm. My dad was telling me that, you know, he really recommended a medical field. He said, if you want to go do something in medical field, I'll pay your way to college. So I went in and I started doing EMT training. Okay. And I had been a volunteer at St. Joseph Hospital for a while. So, I mean, I'd, I'd been around the medical field and I kind of knew what I was getting into. But the more I got into it, I realized it was not something that I could do. And I, I was way too emotionally connected to what was going on. If I had a patient, you know, in extreme pain or dying, I would take that home with me every night. And I knew I wouldn't be able to separate myself. So that was not a good field for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I tanked those classes. I flunked out of college so fast. <laughs> <laughs> And I am so grateful that I did because if I had gone through and, and done that, I would be in a career that I was absolutely miserable in. I would right. be depressed and it was not for me. I have a lot of respect for people who can do that, who can compartmentalize and do that job and not go home completely devastated every night. That's incredible. Hmm. That is not me. Right. <laughs> and I started thinking, it's like, okay, I know this probably won't be as lucrative as a job, but I really wanted to be a writer. And I did take like a lot of creative writing classes, but I started getting more into journalism and I had been working, um, sort of, I started when I was 17 working for the Wichita wings. I was the, the art person for their missile magazine. Okay. And I worked for them for the time I was like 17 to 26 doing all kinds of designs and everything and, uh, doing advertising and doing some like little interview sort of things. So I'd had experience doing this kind of thing. And whenever I was at WSU, I worked for WSU too. 
I worked in their ad department at the Heskett Center, and then I moved okay. over to the Sunflower uh-huh. and became an advertising manager. And so I was always around like journalism and public relations and advertising, and I thought, okay, this is what I should do. And so I eventually went back to school, and I I didn't have enough money to pay for the tuition, so I would like work a semester and then go to school for a semester, and then work a semester, and then go to school for a semester. And it took me 14 years to finish my, my journalism degree, but I finally got it and started working for a news service in Wichita, okay. uh, broadcast. Uh-huh. And I went and sat in a booth eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, doing headline news and stock quotes. And, <laughs> and I was giggles with your joke of the day. <laughs> That's funny. And well, they, they named me Giggles because the jokes were so bad that I would giggle. I was reading because I would be thinking, <laughs> I have $20,000 of student loan debt to be doing these jokes for a living. Right. Because it was things like, <laughs> okay, this is the one that I always always remember. Like, Hi, this is Giggles with your joke of the day. What starts with T, ends with T, and has T in it. <laughs> Give up? It's a teapot, silly. Be sure and check back tomorrow for another joke of the day. I'll oh, be man. waiting. That's funny. <laughs> you're thinking, I got a journalism degree to do this. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> that's funny. But it's like after that, it's like I, I realized that even that job was seriously depressing because I sat there every hour talking about war and rape and right. com- companies polluting com- uh, cities with, you know, pollution in the waterways and kids getting cancer from it. And I, I finally decided it's like, okay, if I'm going to have to deal with things that are depressing, I want a job where I can do something about it, but I know I can't be medical because, you know, if they're alive and suffering, I can't do that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get a job on a crime scene unit where I can help catch people who do bad things. And, uh, then you know, that's, that's something that I could do. I may, I can deal with like all these horrible things if I know I'm going to help stop it. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to school and got a degree, um, in forensic criminology. I actually got to study with Kitty Landwehr, the guy who I took serial, I took profiling with Kitty Landwehr who caught BTK. Oh man, that's cool. Yeah. We actually, we studied his case. It was the, the things that actually came out in the press are nothing compared to what was actually the case file. I bet. Yeah, we also studied the Carr brother case too. That's uh-huh. that's another one. That the things that came out to the public are nothing compared to what's in the case file. That's probably for the best. And yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so those things are all. It's like for as many things as I forget, there are certain things that get stuck in my brain, and it's never the things that you really want to get stuck in. There. Right. But I graduated with that degree, and that's when I had all the brain surgeries and had all the problems and you know, right. had the accident and. I could no longer meet the physical requirements for that job. Sure. And it just kind of like threw my whole life into like this, what do I do now situation? Yep. And it took me like five years to recover to where I could go back to work. Cause my, my doctor said I'd never go back to work. And then I went back to work and I was told you'll never go back full time. I went back full time. <laughs> like, well, you'll never be able to do anything physically demanding. I started working in the stock room at a bookstore carrying 50 pound boxes of books and it's like every time they tell me I can't do something, I'm like, watch me. <laughs> yeah, that's the next thing you got to go do then. Yeah. What is your definition of success? Being happy. I mean, honestly, it's like I I don't need a lot of money. I just want to be able to, you know, have a house. We have enough food in the house. I can take care of my dog. My husband and I could, you know, go out to eat once in a while. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to just be happy. That's it. That's success for me. That's perfect. And, and right now I consider myself to be very successful. I am, I am the happiest that I have ever been in my life. The, the man that I married, Pedro Burkhardt is just incredible. He is like, some people have like a service dog. I have a service husband. <laughs> <laughs> he can see, he looks at me and he knows, I don't have to say anything. I may not even realize something's coming on. He can look at me and know that something is going on with me and mm-hmm. he knows what to do to help me. I mean, it's just, it's, he's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have a life motto that you live by or what's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> ever since I was a kid, we, we moved around a lot. You know, I, I probably went to like five different grade schools and I'm always a 
been a big person. My mom told me that when I was in kindergarten, I was almost as tall as my teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and plus, you know, I'm just, I'm, I've always been a little bit overweight. And sometimes I was really overweight during the surgeries. I actually got up to over 300 pounds at one point because uh-huh. I was stuck in bed for like a year. Right. So, you know, I lost like a hundred pounds off of that. So I've just, I was always been a big person and I got teased a lot. I get bullied a lot and it never bothered me because my, my motto for service, like since birth, it's always been, you know what, if you don't like me, eh, bite me. I don't care. <laughs> it's like, unless you're like my mom, my dad, my husband, your opinion doesn't matter. Right. It's like, I, I don't let people get to it. I always find it really hilarious when people on, on Facebook try to bully me because of an opinion that I post. I'm like, why do I care? What do you think? Right. Some random person. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm I'm not going to stress out about that. Life is hard enough. You don't need to stress out about all those little things. Right. Just let it go. Like it doesn't matter. People, people really, the best thing they can ever do for themselves is to learn to just let things go. Yeah, definitely. What's a habit that you've developed over the past few years that's most improved your life? Taking notes. <laughs> that's a good one. I, I have notes everywhere. I have little notebooks that I keep by my table and by my computer and in my purse. You know, I have my cell phone, so I I have reminders in there. I am really horrible about time management, so I set alarms. I set alarm when I need to get up. I set another alarm that I know I need to start getting ready to do this, you know, because I, I have no concept of time anymore. I can be sitting here writing or talking to somebody, and it'll be like four hours later. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And that's that's probably how like whenever my husband and I went on our first date, we were just going to meet for lunch. It was not a date. We were just going to meet for lunch and see if we wanted to date because we were both like, you know, we're in our late forties. We don't have time to mess around. If we don't really hit it off, why bother spending right. time dating? And we're both really blunt like that. We just say what we're thinking, so it's perfect. And we're like, yeah, great. Let's meet for lunch. If we like each other, we'll plan a date. And lunch lasted eleven hours. Wow, that's the longest lunch <laughs> I've ever heard. It was incredible. Like we went to lunch, we went shopping together, we went out to dinner, we went to a movie. I mean, we just we couldn't shut up. We couldn't stop talking to each other. <laughs> and it's still that way. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite part of Wichita, or is there a hidden gem in Wichita that you know about? I I love the art. There has always been like these these great art pieces around Wichita that are just incredible. I mean, some people just seem to be oblivious to to the statues and the murals and the mosaics and everything that are in town. They are fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I love living here in Dusseldorf, Germany. It reminds me so much of Wichita, because this is like the art and fashion center of Germany. And you walk around here and there's all of these statues and murals and, and it reminds me so much of Wichita. And I know a lot of people probably um, have different opinions about it, but those weird little, whole wheat things that they have on the sides of the bridges down in Wichita. Yeah. I love those. I yeah, those are really cool. For some reason, I just, I've loved those since they put those in. The only thing that I really wish that they had done different is, you know, they have that like fanned out archway on one of the streets. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like the gateway to Wichita. I wish they would have put that somewhere else where you could see it better. Because right. it's kind of hidden down in there. Yep. It would have been really nice if they had put that up somewhere where it was so much easier for people to see. Right. But, you know, things like that and the weird little light poles that they have down by where Riverside Hospital used to be, uh-huh. that they all you know change colors on different days. I, I love that about Wichita. And it took me forever to find the um, the troll that's down by the river. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I love that. That is like my, my favorite thing to go show people is the, the little hidden troll down there. Yeah, it's really cool. Right by the keeper, it's really cool. Yeah, I love that. Is there anything you wish Wichita had that it doesn't or something that you wish um, Wichita would improve on or improve? Public transportation. Okay. I swear here we do not have a car because within walking just like two blocks, there's a train station, there's bus stops, there's where they have streetcars, subways. um, Oh, what was the other one? Streetcars, buses, subways. Taxis, I mean, fleets of taxis here. You can get by. I mean, Dusseldorf is a very big, spread out city like Wichita. Mm-hmm. You can get anywhere in like 30 minutes on a train. And I wish Wichita could have that. Yeah. 
I wish they had something like that there because it would be so much better for people. Cause I, I know so many people there who can't afford a car in Wichita right. and they depend on the, the buses, but the buses don't always run where they need to go. Yeah, it, it for has sure. a very limited route that they do. So if, if I could give Wichita anyone, anything, it would be like a fantastic public transportation system. Very cool. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good one. Um, just a, one or two more questions. What does Wichita mean to you? I think no matter where I live, it's like in my brain, I know this is home. We're planning to stay here for the foreseeable future. But in my heart, Wichita is still home. That's like awesome. It doesn't matter where I go. It's always going to be where I spent, you know, 46 years of my life. Right. That's, that's always going to be home. Sure. Um, do you have any final comments or calls to action to any people in or from Wichita that might be hearing this podcast? Yes. Go to my website and buy my books. <laughs> Please. They're cheap. They're not expensive. I promise. And they're good. People tell me I make them cry all the time that my, my books are very um, emotionally engaging. Okay. Like I, I've been told that it's like some people just absolutely want to go and, you know, hit one of my characters because they made them so mad for what they did. And other ones, they make them cry. I mean, that's, that's like the best compliments that I ever get when people tell me that I affected them on an emotionally deep level. So yeah, definitely. That's if that would be cool. my call to action. Like go to my website. It's stevenburkhart.com. I made it easy <laughs> <laughs> and just check out my work. And I am getting ready. I'm working on book three right now, uh -huh. which I'm hoping to release for uh, Valentine's Day. And I'm going to be giving away a gift bag that has like an autographed book from one of the previous books in this series. Mm -hmm. And all these other little promotional goodies and a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day. And all people have to do is just go up on my site and enter. There's like, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to do anything but fill out the little form. And... Um, I just set it up last night. I'm not sure if it's really live yet. I'll have to double check because I was finishing that at five o'clock this morning and I was going a little cross-eyed at the time. So I'm not <laughs> sure what was working when I finished. So I need to go back and do a check on that, but it will be live by today. Perfect. And yeah. And this will definitely be up uh, with a few weeks to spare before Valentine's day. So very cool. Yeah. So, and um, I mean, that would be it. And hopefully um, you can, Buy my books on bn.com, on amazon.com, and leave a review and let me know what you think. If you think there's something that I need to improve on, let me know. If you think it's fantastic, let me know that too. Perfect. Yep, I will link up all that stuff in the show notes for this and share it on social media. So, Sherry, I really appreciate you calling and reaching out in the first place. I don't think we would have ever met or talked if you hadn't reached out, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, this has been fun. I love this. Very this is cool. you know, the first time I've ever I've been on this side of it. So it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> you did great. Thanks again. And um, good luck with everything. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. You too. Thank you to everyone who stuck it out and listened to this episode of the Wichita Live podcast. Thanks to the local Wichita band, The Caves, for use of their song. You can find links to everything we discussed in the show notes at wichitalifeict.com. If you have any comments or recommendations for our podcast, feel free to contact us at wichitalifeict at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, hasta luego.